0: we are embarking on a new section of Acts, chapter 9, verses 23 through 31. It's about Saul's life after his conversion on the road to Damascus. And what appears at first glance is like a little period of time in, in chapter 9 is actually several years of time has elapsed just in this one chapter. In fact, after chapter 9, we don't hear from the Apostle Paul who's now Saul. We don't hear from him until chapter 11, and about eight or ten years have taken place in between those two chapters. So it's quite a lot of time. Now the scripture doesn't give us any detail exactly what Saul or Paul was doing during that time. We just know that he was at Tarsus, and we assume that he was doing what he was doing right before, after he went to Tarsus, and that is preaching, uh, encouraging the saints, and defending the faith of what it said in chapter 9 earlier. Of proving that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. If we were to look at his movements through chapter 9, we see this. It started in Jerusalem, and that was when he was actually uh, traveling to go and murder Christians or jail them. And then he was on his way to Damascus, and that's where his conversion took place. And then he went to Arabia. We know this because of Galatians, and he was there for about three years. And apparently it was a time in which God just really allowed him to soak in his grace and to understand. I mean, imagine all of the, you know, he was a Pharisee and all these things that had been inculcated in his way of thinking. And I mean, for that worldview to change, basically God sent him to a desert seminary to learn about his grace. And then he went to Damascus. Then from Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. He was there for a couple of weeks and then to Caesarea and Tarsus. Why is this even relevant? Why does this matter? It struck me that, you have these gaps where you don't hear from him. You know, eight or 10 years between chapter 9 and, and chapter 11, I mean, we don't know all the details of what is happening, but we know something is happening in his life, right? Even though we don't know specifically. We can assume that God was still using him and God was moving in him through that time. And it struck me that we often get impatient, do we not? with the Lord's work in our own life because we may not see something happen, something dramatic? I mean, if something is not happening, we're prone to assume that nothing is happening at all or that it will never happen. I mean, we want action. We want movement. We want progress. We want something dramatic. Does God ever sleep on the job? No, never. It's safe to assume that God was still moving in Saul's life, still using him, still teaching him, even though there are years that we don't hear about Saul. I mean, aren't there times in our own lives when we feel like, you know, God has put us on the back 40 because nothing's really happening? Things are kind of quiet. Is God asleep? Can we not, during that time, continue to grow Does God not bring times of maybe even calm, silent periods to prepare us for what may be ahead? And in Saul's case, it was a storm that was coming. I mean, we pick it up in Acts 11, and after that, we see the persecution begin to heat up, particularly for Paul. It's funny how in our culture, we feel like our Christianity is defined by going from one mountaintop experience to another. That's the only time I feel God's presence. And I would have to say, I don't think so. I mean, nothing wrong with a mountaintop experience. I don't know about you, but my life is not filled with mountaintop experiences. You know, when I pay the bills, that's not a mountaintop experience. We, we have to do life, right? Right? And it's it's not always this great emotional charge. But isn't God there as well? Isn't God there in the pain as well? Or the hardships? And so if anything, maybe we can learn to, to walk with God, find contentment, appreciate what God is doing, even when it seems like things aren't quite dramatic or nothing's happening. Whether in the valley or the mountaintop, God is there. And here, in chapter 9, we're going to see that Saul is going through a valley. But you know what? God was there. Let's all stand as we take a look at this passage. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night And he spoke and uh, disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When many days passed, between verses 22 and 23, we know that there are about three years that have taken place there. We know this. Because of Galatians 1, check this out. But when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So a few years after Paul's conversion, he's in Damascus preaching the gospel about Jesus being the Son of God and what he did on the cross, and that message was not well received. They did not like what he had to say. The hunter, Saul, who was killing Christians before and is now converted, the hunter is now the hunted. He's the target of essentially an assassination plot. God, in the midst of this, is still moving, is intervening. He does this by two ways. One, he makes known to Saul what these Hellenists were trying to do to kill him. We don't know how this nefarious plan was was revealed to Saul. We just know that God made sure that Saul and the disciples found out. And number two, The disciples in Damascus helped Saul. Now, this would be like Saddam Hussein living next door to you, asking for help, assuming he's still alive, and you got a group of people that are helping him. Because I can't imagine anybody in our recent past that maybe was more hated or more feared than Saddam Hussein. And I think that would kind of be an accurate picture of how Saul was viewed by the church. And yet, they were moved to help him because they believed that the conversion of Saul was genuine. I mean, they had a front row seat at his conversion. And even though they were skittish at first, they came to love and appreciate him. And they believed that, yes, indeed, God did deliver Saul from darkness to light. And so God gives us information that we need in difficult times. And in the case of Saul, it was like this, you know, classified information about this assassination plot. But God will give us whatever we need in order to deal with hardship. I mean, no test, no hardship, no trial will be without what it is we need in that moment. For Saul, that meant deliverance and the the knowledge of what was about to happen. For us, it might be something else. But we're promised this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And I want you to think of these next three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape. He will give you what you need that you may be able to endure it. God also provides the people that we need. Now for Saul, it was a a godly coalition of wicker elevator operators, right? To lower him down a wall at night to escape those who meant him harm. And the intensity of these enemies is seen in the words, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. (laughs) Let us not forget, this is a religious group that is trying to kill him. Just let that sink in a second. His worst enemies were from the religious Culture. And let us not forget that there are enemies to the gospel. Real enemies. Now, in this country, at least so far, those enemies are not a coalition of soldiers. But there are other weapons that the enemies can use, particularly in our culture, to lead people astray. I mean, enemies can be a way of thinking, a worldview, if you will. And I think. Our enemies in this culture are camouflaged by claims of reason, by claims that they have the moral and intellectual high ground. And the enemy sets a trap by saying that Christianity is merely an existential, subjective experience with no room for confidence and certainty. In fact, if you have confidence and certainty of your faith, you're an idiot, arrogant person because all religion is just mere opinion, or so they say. And the irony is that these people do this under the guise of you know, not wanting to judge, so all religions are on the same subjective, you know, relative ground, but in fact, they are the most judgmental with those who claim that Christianity has a theological component, a factual base, a, a historical foundation, such worldview enemies, serve to lure vulnerable believers astray. Essentially kills their faith. When Paul wrote to Timothy about holding fast to the truth of the gospel, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.9, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. I mean, we are talking about a world of ideas, a way of thinking, and again, for our application today, the placement of Christianity into just a a subjective experience, I think, is a death sentence to vibrant faith. Now, it's not that there aren't areas of experience that are subjective. There are, but at the core of Christianity, what we stand on are the facts of history, about a real man named Jesus, who died a real death on a cross, who was buried in an actual tomb. He was not covered with a metaphorical rock, but one that weighed tons. And that rock was moved, and Jesus rose from the grave three days later. It is not subjective beliefs that were witnessed by hundreds of people who later were willing to die for their testimony that there was a resurrection. Our faith is founded on the history of the Son of God dying, being buried, and rising from the dead. And denuding these facts from Christianity is not the intellectual high ground, it's suicide. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have to be wise about the enemies of thought, of worldviews, that will ruin the faith of many. Our text in Acts gives a story of Saul escaping Damascus by being let down from a wall in a basket. Now, I think all of us, when we read about the apostles, and particularly, you know, uh, Saul and Paul, we, we think, man, there's a stalwart of the faith, right? You know, this guy seems impervious to persecution and and hardship, but you'd be wrong. Saul was human. He was prone to the same fears and scars that that we have as human beings. And he gives a list in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 33, that actually ties into our passage here in Acts 9. Listen to this. And by the way, he's not giving this to brag, he's not giving this to, you know, Garner sympathy, it's just a statement of fact. Here's what I faced. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And by the way, I just want to add, right up front, at his conversion, he knew he was going to be persecuted. And still he said yes to Jesus. I mean, put that in your coffee and drink it. And think of our gospel presentations to people. You know, Jesus is going to give you all these great things. And here, here's what was up ahead for him. He was told he was going to be persecuted, and he says yes to Christ. Perhaps if we told our converts more of the truth that, hey, life is just beginning. There's a lot of good things, but let me tell you, it's going to be really, really tough. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers uh, in toils, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And Am I not weak? Who is made to fall And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And then listen to this. He says, the God and father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I find it amazing that in this list of all of these terrible things that happened to Saul, kind of the cinquanon, the the climax, the, the, the chief humiliating experience for him seems to be being let down in a basket. I mean, if you think about it, he enjoyed a free pass from government authorities as he hunted down Christians before his conversion. He was a, the, the chief of Jews, of Pharisees. I mean, he was a rock star within Judaism. But since his conversion now, he is a wanted man. I mean, we could safely assume that Saul was a man with human tendencies for respect, just like the rest of us. But then he writes this passage in 2 Corinthians And later on, just a few verses after this, he wants to demonstrate that what God did by all of this, it's like God stripped from him all of the things that he put his hope in in order that he might learn something greater. Check this out. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am content. I have learned to be content having all of these things stripped from me. I don't have the support of family. I don't have the job now. I am content. I am destitute. I am content. I've been persecuted. I am content. The financial hardships, those hopes that have been dashed, Maybe they are opportunities for us to see in Christ alone we can be content. The Christianity that's often offered is, well, you believe in Christ, you'll be delivered from all of this. That's a fairy tale. That's not the Bible I read. Things are still going to be hard. But I can learn to be content and find God in the valley. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now from the Galatian passage that we read earlier, we know that he was there about 15 days in Jerusalem, and I wish I could go off on that Galatians 1 and 2 are like a, a theology of grace, a theology of unity, what really binds us together as a body, and that those are the essentials of the gospel. Unlike, it seems, the American church, and not just in America, and all the other places I go to, it seems that you know, people struggle with this legalism thing and, and the, the, you know, don't can't seem to really believe that God could put a body together on the essentials of the gospel. Instead, we got to make our list of things that we want other Christians to get in line and do, and have this homogenous group. The long we look alike, believe every jot and tittle, then we're unified. But Galatians 1 and 2 says, Gentiles and the Gentiles and the, and the Jews, couldn't have been two more different people, came together and were unified. And Paul calls to task Peter for trying to ba- you know, basically throw in the mix this Legalism, it says, no, 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 no. Mm -mm." It's an interesting passage. I wish I could go off on it, but it's not the intent here of of Acts 9. The point is, I want you to remember that it's been several years since Saul's conversion, and the Christians in Jerusalem were still reticent to receive Saul as generally converted. I mean, he was so feared, right? Right? for his killing and his jailing of Christians. They they just could not get their minds around that he was converted to Jesus? What? Our passage says, he attempted to join the disciples. He attempted. Basically, what you have are different conversations, different relationships that tried to start All wrapped up in that little statement, he attempted to join the disciples. That means that he tried to be a part of this body, but you know what? They wouldn't let him in. The Christians in Jerusalem were too fearful to let him close. You're certainly not like us. We know what you did in the past. They distrusted this new brother in Christ. And listen, if you've ever had that experience, you know that leaves a mark, (laughs) right? And that's a very painful source of rejection. Inner Barnabas. His name means the son of encouragement. And it's like he takes Saul by the hand and he introduces him, puts his reputation on the line. He introduces him to the leader's of the church and then he pronounces the following facts. Fact 1, Saul had a genuine conversion on the Damascus road. Fact 2, God spoke to Saul. Fact 3, Saul has been preaching at Damascus defending the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. It's as if Barnabas is saying Now, does that sound to you like a guy who's faking his conversion? Does that sound to you like a guy that's not generally been transferred from darkness to light? I mean, it was important for the apostles and the church leaders to accept Saul so that his ministry would not be hindered and he'd not be going around like some renegade apostle. Barnabas. Wow. Oh, that we had a Barnabas in our life. Or better yet, that we would be a Barnabas for somebody. You know, not holding people's past against them. Is it not the heart of God to not hold our past against us? It's here that I think all young Christians need to hear over and over again about the grace of God. Because I think what happens is somebody comes to Christ, they get discouraged, maybe somebody says a stupid thing, a judgmental word. They get discouraged, and I say, ah, you know what, this this just isn't worth it. I read of one church, they have a ministry called Guardian Angels. They, They pair up a mature Christian with a new convert and help them through these early stages, like the first year of their walk with Jesus. To help them get through these bumps in the road so that their faith would not be shipwrecked. Barnabas accepted Saul. He did not let this initial anxiousness or fear get in the way of treating him with dignity and respect. amazing thing. Barnabas. Could you be a Barnabas? Take somebody by the hand. Come alongside. Encourage. Listen, it comes natural to all of us to point out the faults. It's supernatural to take somebody's hand, to express grace, to point them to Christ, to encourage Pro-life speaker and advocate Stephanie Gray tells the following story about treating each person this way. She writes, Every Friday morning, my friend Kathleen spends an hour playing Scrabble with a lovely 93-year-old lady at a local care home. It's Kathleen's simple way of helping the elderly find joy in their daily life. She's always praying for opportunities to talk to the woman about God or to simply show her that she is loved. Finally, that opportunity came in full force. After the game, the woman asked, What do you think of doctor-assisted suicide? And pointed to an article from the paper on the topic. Kathleen said, I told her that I felt it was very sad that anyone should feel the need to take their life. And it's our failure as a society when anyone is left feeling this way. After some time discussing this, she expressed to me that she can sympathize with people who don't feel they have a reason to live in their suffering as she too often wonders why God still has her stuck in this wheelchair. Kathleen concluded, with tears in my eyes, I was able to tell her what a joy she is to me and that I look forward to visiting her every week. She teared up as well, shock in her eyes, and said, Really? Is that true? I nodded, unable to even get my words out. She said, Well, then, Perhaps there's reason enough for me to be here. All it took. One person, one hand. Showing compassion, showing care. I got a sneaky suspicion there's probably somebody in your life that you could be a Barnabas to. Someone that maybe like that picture of Jesus where he had the uh, the people had the friends and they put the guy down through the roof, you know, broke through the thatch. And maybe he didn't have enough faith, but they had enough faith to do it for him. Put put somebody in a position where they could be helped. Lend a hand. Believe that they're important, that they have dignity, every human being. To give them hope. To give them some encouragement. It doesn't hurt by looking them in the eye, putting a hand on their shoulder, show them you care. I bet you there's a Barnabas in you, and I bet you there's a person in your life that could use that encouragement. Let's pray.